We'll be reading the entire chapter of Numbers chapter 19. But before we do so, please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, as we come to your word this evening, we pray that you would bless it to us. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we could not see what you have set before us. And so, Lord, we pray that you, you, you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds that we might receive your truth, that Christ might be sent before us, and that you would draw us nearer, still nearer, to our precious Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Numbers chapter 19. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel, for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent on all the vessels, on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, 
wash his clothes, and bathe in water. And at evening he shall be clean. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. This is the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of our God. May he bless it to us. People of God, let's think for a moment about an underappreciated job. The roadkill picker-upper. The guy whose job it is to drive around all day, and when he sees a dead animal lying on the side of the road, instead of swerving around it like everyone else does, it's this guy's job to stop and to take care of it. The deer, the possum, the raccoon, whatever it is, in whatever condition it is, it's this guy's job to take care of it. It's, it's kind of a yucky job, isn't it? it? It's probably not a very enjoyable job. And yet think about what it's like when this guy comes home. He's probably got some leftovers on his clothes or on his hands, and that stench of death is around him. And so when he opens up the door and he comes in and he says, Hello, honey, I'm home, and he goes in for a hug, do you think she's going to be happy to see him? Well, no, I don't. She'll she'll probably recoil, like, no, get away until you clean, until you get washed. Because the presence of death on his body prevents him from entering into her presence. He needs to be cleaned. And congregation, if that's the case with a wife, how much more is that the case with the holy God of Scripture? How much more does someone need to be clean from the stain of death before entering into the presence of the God of life? That's the question that's addressed by our passage this evening. In light of the death in and around Israel, they needed cleansing. They needed that cleansing in order to remain in God's presence. And the good news of our passage is that God himself gives his people this cleansing that they needed. God made a way for Israel to be clean from death that they could continue to dwell with him. And ironically enough, this cleansing involved death. And so we see that through death, God graciously makes provision for death's uncleanness. That's our theme this evening, that through death, God graciously makes provision for death's uncleanness. And as we look at our passage, we're going to look at it a little bit out of order. We're going to start in the back half, verses 11 through 22, And there we'll see the provision required. Then we're going to go to the first ten verses, verses 1 through 10, and there we'll see the provision accomplished. And then we're going to return to those last 11 verses, 11 through 22, and see the provision applied. So we've got provision required, provision accomplished, and provision applied. Now let's begin with the provision required. And as we come to this chapter in the book of Numbers, you might think it's a little bit out of place. Because here we've got instructions about a sacrifice for ceremonial cleansing. And you think to yourself, wouldn't that feel a little bit more home in the book of Leviticus? 
I mean, that book is full of all ceremonies and sacrifices and all sorts of this kind of stuff. What is it doing in the book of Numbers? Well, the context helps us understand that a little bit. If we flip back a couple pages to Numbers chapter 16, there we see Korah's rebellion. And at the end of Korah's rebellion, the people of Israel grumble. And because of their grumbling, almost 15,000 people die. You see that in verse 49 of chapter 16. There's dead bodies all over the place here in Israel. But that incident in chapter 16 is just a hint of what's going to happen in Israel. Because if you flip back a couple chapters earlier to Numbers 14, there we see that Israel hears the report about the promised land. And they're scared. They refuse to enter. And what does God tell them? 14 verse 29. God says this. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered, according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above. All of the old generation that God led out of Egypt, minus Joshua and Caleb, they're going to die off. One by one by one by one over the next 40 years. Hundreds of thousands of dead bodies that these people are going to have to deal with. As they're wandering through this wilderness, death is going to be their constant companion. They can't get rid of it any more than they can their shadow in the hot desert sun. Death is always going to be with this people. And with all of that death, contact with death was going to be inevitable. A family member is going to die, and you're going to be there with them in their last hours. Or you have to bury your neighbor Or you stumble over someone who's died in the dark. Contact with death is going to happen, and that would make a person unclean. Verse 11 lays out the overarching principle. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. There's no exceptions. You touch a dead body, boop, you're you're unclean. That's it. Verses 14 through 16 take that overarching principle, and they go a little more in-depth outlining if that death takes place in a tent or in an open field, basically inside the camp or outside the camp. And in looking at both, we see the devastating effects of death, that it spreads and that it lingers. We see this spreading of death's uncleanness in verses 14 and 15. If someone dies in a tent, everyone in that tent is unclean. And every open vessel is unclean. It doesn't matter if you're on the other side of the tent. It doesn't matter if you've even touched that dead body. You're unclean. Because uncleanliness spreads. Verse 22 shows that too. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And anyone who touches that will be unclean until evening. Uncleanliness spreads. And this concept of the spreading of uncleanliness, it makes sense to us, doesn't it? I mean, kids, if if you've taken a bath and you are scrubbed clean from head to toe, and then you go outside, not now, I wouldn't recommend this, but you go outside in shorts and a t-shirt and you're in a mud puddle and you roll around in the mud puddle, are you going to make that mud puddle clean or is that mud puddle going to make you dirty? The mud puddle is going to make you dirty, isn't it? Because uncleanliness spreads. Dirty, unclean things spread. 
Likewise, the contamination of death also spreads. And it also lingers. In verse 16, if you're in a field, if you touch a dead body, you're unclean. Sure, we get that. But even if you touch a human bone or a grave, you're unclean. It doesn't matter that in those cases, death took place a long, long time ago. No, the uncleanliness of death, it sticks around. It doesn't easily go away. Just ask Lady Macbeth about that, trying to get that spot out of her hands. Death lingers. But let's ask ourselves, why was death such a problem? I mean, what's the big deal? Were dead bodies covered in some ickies and goombas that God couldn't stand? Were there some germs that God was trying to keep outside the camp? Well, no. To understand what's going on here, we we need to think about what death is. Death is a result of sin. And so death here is representative of sin, spiritually speaking. If you've come in contact with death, then you've come in contact with an effect of sin. And because sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God, neither can death. And so provision needs to be made so that someone who has come into contact with death can be let back into God's holy presence. Now, the act of touching a dead body wasn't necessarily sinful in and of itself, but it pointed to something greater than itself. It pointed to the effects of sin, and so touching that dead body would bring the contamination of death, the contamination of sin. And with all of these dead bodies in the camp of Israel, they were going to have an enormous infestation on their hands. Each and every one of them was going to be affected. But lest we think that their problem is unique, let's think about our own situation. Paul says in Romans 5.12 that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, in the fall, death spread to all men. No one is unaffected. We are all unclean because of death, because of original sin. And that sin lingers. It didn't leave the human race after a few generations. It doesn't leave us after a few years. No, it sticks around. And so today, even though we aren't in much danger of coming into contact with dead bodies, thanks to the roadkill picker-upper, thanks to funeral homes and things like that, we don't have to touch dead bodies, but we still are in danger of coming into contact with that spiritual reality. We're in danger of coming into contact with sin. Think about your lives. How easy it is to be contaminated by sin. You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, and it about gives you a heart attack, but it also gives you bitterness. Your child disobeys, it gives you frustration. Your spouse snaps at you, it gives you anger. You see a suggestive ad, it gives you lust. You hear praise for something well done, and it gives you pride. Whatever it is, wherever we may be, in our midst, there is the danger of sin and being contaminated by sin. And so we see that Israel's problem, it's our problem too. In fact, this problem of death's contamination, it is a universal problem. There's no one exempt. And so as we are all tainted with death, we all have a need for cleansing. 
If we are going to remain in God's presence, if Israel was going to remain in God's presence, then provision needed to be made. Something needed to be done. Thankfully, something was done. God provided for his people. Through death, God graciously made provision for death's uncleanliness. And as we move to the first ten verses of our passage and to our second point, we see the provision accomplished. How God made a way for those who were unclean from death to come back in to his presence. And we see that this entire provision revolves around the sacrifice of the red heifer. And there are several, as we look at this red heifer, there are several aspects of this sacrifice we need to consider. First, we have the unblemished red heifer. Verse 2 tells us that tell the, the people of Israel were commanded to bring a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. Like all other sacrifices to God, this is to be a perfect animal specimen. We're not talking about a call cow here, one who limps up to the water trough or one who kicks the tar out of the milker and so you want to get rid of it. No, this is to be a perfect animal, a good animal. We're not talking leftovers here. We're talking about the best of the herd for God. And also, it's one that never had a yoke. And this is actually where most translators get the idea that this animal is to be a heifer, a young animal instead of an older animal even though the Hebrew word is ambiguous. It really just means cow. And one commentator noted that if you, are, if you take that idea of a cow and you think about a big animal, then you'd see the abundance of that provision. You'd see even more grace. There are so many more ashes you could get from a large animal than a small animal. But regardless, whether it's large or small, here we have the perfect, pure sacrifice that God commanded to be slaughtered. But what's going on with that red color? No other sacrifice has such rules. Why red? And the text again is ambiguous. We don't really know. But it could point to the uniqueness of the sacrifice. There aren't many red, all red animals running around Israel. And some commentators, especially Jewish commentators, get really into this. Where they say that this red animal can only have two non-red hairs on it. And that really speaks to the uniqueness of it. And that could be one aspect, the uniqueness of the animal, but it also reinforces the idea of blood. Because we see a lot of red in this passage, don't we? We see it in the heifer. We see it in the blood. We see it in the cedar wood and in the scarlet. Red over and over and over again, highlighting the blood of the sacrifice. But at this point, we just have the animal. Then what happens to it? Well, the second aspect is that it's taken outside the camp. You see that in verse 3. Again, this aspect makes this one sacrifice different from all the others in Scripture. All the other animals that are slaughtered are supposed to be slaughtered on an altar. Why is this one different? Well, think about its purpose. This sacrifice is going to be taking on the contamination of death. And if death can't be in God's presence, why would this sacrifice take place there? No, it's outside. It's away from God because that's where death belongs. And thirdly, once it is outside, it's slaughtered. 
Its blood is shed. And verse 4 says that this blood is to be sprinkled towards the front of the tent of meeting. Seven times. And on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, blood is sprinkled in the tabernacle. But because we're outside of the camp, it's simply sprinkled in the direction of the tabernacle to provide cleansing. So we see that aspect of being slaughtered. And fourth, we see that this entire heifer is to be burned. The whole thing. Verse 5 tells us that its hide, its flesh, and even its offal are to be burned. Now, normal sacrifice to cut out some of those parts. But here, the entirety of the red heifer is supposed to be burned. Nothing is left out. And in fact, some things are added, aren't they? Verse 6, we see that cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet are thrown into the fire where the heifer is burning. And we've already noted that cedar wood and scarlet have that red color to reinforce the idea of blood. And hyssop is also known for its use in cleansing rituals. Think of David's prayer, Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. So you've got the cedarwood, the hyssop, the scarlet. But why are they thrown into the fire? Let's think about it this way. When you're baking, every ingredient you throw into the mixing bowl serves the final purpose of what you're making. If you're making blueberry pancakes... You put some flour in the mixing bowl to provide the base for your pancakes. You crack some eggs and you put those into the mixing bowl to tie everything together. And you throw blueberries in there because you love explosions of delicious goodness. Every ingredient of the blueberry pancakes serves the final purpose of the blueberry pancakes. The same thing is happening here. All the ingredients of this sacrifice that are burned together serve the purpose of cleansing. You've got the pure sacrifice. You've got the blood that will cleanse, the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet. All of it burned together, making these ashes that will be used for cleansing. Through the death of this red heifer and everything that is done to it, God makes provision for death's uncleanliness, and he gives his people ashes. And then as we see in verse 9, these ashes are gathered up, and they're taken outside the camp, and they are kept in a pure place. And that's where they stay until they need to be applied. At this point, God's gracious provision has been accomplished. He's given his people what they need. They have these ashes as kind of an instant purification offering. It's kind of like an instant pudding mix or an instant jello mix. You just add water and bam, it's ready to go. And we'll see that later on in the application. But at this point, the ashes are here. The one sacrifice has been accomplished and it is available for future use. But notice one more thing that had to happen for these ashes to be provided. We walked through the various aspects of what happened to the heifer itself as it was turned into these ashes. But did you notice something about the people that made it happen? What happened to them? They all became unclean. The priest who sprinkled the blood the clean person who burned the heifer, the clean person who gathered up the ashes, and finally, later on in verse 22, the person who would actually apply the provision to the unclean person. They all became unclean as their hands were involved in this process. That's why you see in verses 7, 8, 10, and 21 that all of these people needed to wash because they were unclean. How ironic. 
that what was provided to those who were unclean so that they could become clean made those who were already clean unclean. And therefore, for this entire process to occur, you needed people to willingly become unclean, to willingly give up their fellowship with God for a time so that others might be restored to God. If that didn't happen, God's provision wouldn't be accomplished. It would be a good theory, but it wouldn't actually happen. No, you needed clean people willing to become unclean for this provision to, be, to happen. And so to recap, here is what is required for God's gracious provision. You've got a pure sacrifice killed outside the camp. It's blood sprinkled. The entire sacrifice offered and available for future use. And a clean person willing to become unclean. This is what God gave the people of Israel so that they might be claimed from death's uncleanness. And so that they might be brought back into his presence. And at the same time as we see this sacrifice, we see that the entire thing, every single part of it, pointed ahead to a better sacrifice. So that not just Israel, but that all of mankind might be cleansed from death's uncleanliness and brought back into his presence. This sacrifice pointed ahead to Jesus. Truly, Jesus was the pure sacrifice. He was sinless, without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 19. Jesus, too, was led outside the city. And he was killed in an unclean place on the cross. Hebrews 13, 12. Jesus' blood, too, was poured out for the cleansing of death for mankind. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice offered. And he was also the clean person who was willing to become unclean to make this provision happen. Philippians 2 speaks of that willingness. As he left his privileged place in God's immediate presence to become defiled for us. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took our uncleanliness from death and sin upon himself so that all of God's people would no longer have it and we could all be restored to God's loving presence. Jesus accomplished this provision there and that's what this sacrifice of the red heifer was pointing towards. And so never let it be said, that the God of the Old Testament is just an angry God that needs to be appeased. Because even here, in these rules and instructions about the red heifer, his grace is flowing forth from these pages. God didn't need to make provision for his people to be restored. He could have left them among the corpses with no hope of cleansing until each and every one of them became unclean and had to leave the camp. For us too, He could have left all of us in the uncleanliness of our sins until we were finally cast out of his presence forever. He was under no obligation to provide a way for them to be cleansed or for us to be cleansed. And yet he did. It's amazing grace. We know that song. We, We love that song. Yet how often do we treat God's grace as something we deserve? 
well, yeah, God should cleanse me because I'm a pretty good guy underneath, right? I just got to get this ucky dirt, this ucky sin off. But he didn't have to do that. Right? God wasn't required to cleanse any of us. And so because he does, that should drive us to thank God every day for his gracious provision. If someone gives you something you don't deserve, what do you do? You thank them. If someone leaves cookies in the break room, you thank them for that. If someone pays for your meal at a restaurant or someone gives you a check to help support you through a tough time, you don't deserve any of that, but you thank them. It's a gracious gift, and so you thank them. How much more should we thank the God who graciously provided what we needed most? Cleansing from death. Provision accomplished. Yet even though as we see this provision is accomplished, it was not yet done. Because just sitting there outside of the camp, those ashes weren't going to cleanse a thing. Any more than a bar of soap would at the sink of our roadkill picker-upper. He needs to actually use it. He needs to wash his hands with it. It's not going to do him any good just sitting there. He needs to apply it. And likewise, these ashes that were provided by the sacrifice of the red heifer, they needed to be applied for this cleansing to occur. And so as we return to verses 11 through 22, we see our third point, the provision applied. We see how these ashes were supposed to be used. Now verses 17 through 19 outline this process. Okay, you've got these ashes and what's supposed to happen to them? Well, remember we said we we just add water, right? Fresh water, that is. Literally, in the Hebrew, living water. And that should ring some more Christological bells. And when these ashes are combined with the living water... They're sprinkled on the unclean person. Another person who is clean, willing to become unclean, sprinkles that mixture onto those who have been contaminated with death's uncleanliness so that they might become clean. The water is applied to the individual on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he's clean. Provision is applied. But as we read through those verses, did you notice that that process wasn't automatic? There were actually two options. Either to accept God's provision in faith or to reject God's provision in unbelief and remain unclean. To be cut off from the people of God and from the presence of God. They're not both good options. But nevertheless, we do see twice that God warned what would happen if an unclean person did not make use of his gracious provision. In verses 13 and 20, we read that if a man who is unclean doesn't cleanse himself, he remains unclean. And because he is unclean, he cannot remain in the presence of God. We see that warning, but as we think about it, a question arises, why would a person do that? Right? Why would a person reject this provision? They can't claim ignorance. Right? This law is given to Moses and Aaron. And it's to be a lasting ordinance for everyone in the camp, both citizens and sojourners among them. Everyone knows that it is available. They can't claim ignorance. And they also can't claim cost. 
Because the red heifer's already been provided. They don't even need to pay for the ashes. All they have to do is show up to the priest. They show up. They say, hey, I'm unclean due to the uncleanness of death. Give me some water for cleansing. I need to be clean. That's all that they need to do. It's very simple. They can't claim cost. So if they can't claim ignorance and they can't claim cost, why would someone not partake? Well, it could be that they don't want to bother other people. It could be that they don't want to impose on these clean persons who would become unclean for them. They don't want to be a bother. They don't want to put their issues on other people. We get that, right? I get that. I don't like to put my issues and my burdens on other people. I think in our Dutch reform circles, we have a hard time with that. We're very, we keep things right very close to us. We don't like to share our problems with other people. And yet God has given us people. He's given Israel these people. He gives us pastors and elders and deacons for us to share our problems with. To go to in times when we need the gospel applied to us again and again. He gives these people gracious provision, but that's one reason why they might reject it. They don't want to bother other people. It could also be that they thought they could cleanse themselves. Right? I don't want to follow the rules. I can find my own way. Just leave me alone and mind your own business. That's another common temptation. And in fact, God would later condemn Israel for that very mindset. Jeremiah Jeremiah 2.13 says that my people have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out their own broken cisterns. They tried to do it on their own, apart from God. It's unbelief, rejecting that gracious provision of God. How dangerous, how foolish it is to try to find our own way for cleansing, apart from this way that God has provided. And a third reason someone might reject this provision is, that because, is because they don't think it's necessary. They don't really think that it's that big of a deal. Right? They think they can go on touching dead bodies and still commune with the God of life. But see, the problem is that these two things don't go together. Because if you try to have both, you're going to wind up with the worst and you're going to lose the best. If you try to have both, you're going to lose your wife and you're going to end up smelling like roadkill. If you try to have both, You're going to lose God. And you're going to be stuck with death forever. How foolish. How how dangerous it is to reject God's gracious provision. And just as we see that an Israelite would be cut off from the people of God, and more importantly, the God of the people, if he refused to be cleansed, so too will all those who refuse the better sacrifice who reject God's gracious provision of His Son, be cut off from God forever and be stuck with death forever. That's the one option. But that other option, how glorious it is. Right? To accept in faith that gracious provision of God, to have it applied to yourself and be cleansed from the stain of death, to have the uncleanliness of death swept away, washed away by the application of the death of a substitute. It's beautiful. So let's imagine for a moment what it looked like when an unclean Israelite responds in faith and undergoes this cleansing. What was this washing showing him? 
Well, first it was showing him that he was unclean. Right? I mean, why would a clean person wash? He wouldn't. He was unclean. And so that humbles the person. But secondly, it shows him that this provision was actually cleansing him. For this sacrifice, this ritual is sacramental in nature. It's a physical sign of what's happening spiritually. The uncleanliness from death, from sin, it's being taken away. And he can be assured of this because of that very physical act that was happening. Just as surely as he felt that water being sprinkled on him, so surely was he being cleansed. The same thing happens at communion for us. Question and answer 75 of the Heidelberg Catechism says that just as surely as we receive the bread and the cup and we taste it with our mouths, so surely do we receive the body and blood of Christ. As surely as we experience the physical, so surely is the spiritual happening. And so just as surely as the Israelite was experiencing that cleansing, so surely were his sins being taken away. And we see that ultimately what's being pointed here about the law of the red heifer is Jesus. We see that the provision God provided for death's uncleanliness in his son so that whoever partakes of that provision by faith will be cleansed from the stain of death and be restored into fellowship with God. And as we do that, whether for the first time or again and again, as we keep coming into contact with sin and we go again and again to the blood of Jesus for cleansing, as we do that, we look forward to the day when our cleansing will be complete when it will be fully applied and we will be in the presence of God forever, when death has been fully banished. And we said earlier that death has no place in God's presence. And that's bad news in our fallen state. When we have the uncleanliness of death on us, that means we're separated from God. But that's great news when Christ's sacrifice has actually been applied to us, we're cleansed from the stain of death and we are with God and that means death is banished from us. And so we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth in which Revelation tells us, 21 tells us that death will be no more. Through the death of Christ, God has graciously made provision for death's uncleanliness so that his people might dwell forever in his loving presence. And so let us continue to make use of his gracious provision, accepting it by faith. Don't ignore the problem or try to solve it on your own. This isn't some do-it-yourself project. Those options will get you cast out of God's presence forever. But rather embrace the solution God has provided. Be cleansed by that free, once-for-all, already-accomplished sacrifice of Christ and enter into his presence with joy both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you did not leave us in the uncleanness of death, but that you graciously made provision for us so that we could be restored to your presence. What amazing grace you have shown us, Lord. 
Help us never to take your grace for granted, but to continually run to Jesus for cleansing. For he alone is our only hope. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.